Welcome to The Strategist, episode 1088. I'm your host, Annalise Klingbeil, and with you tonight, Corey Hogan and Zane Belchie. We're doing it, guys. Corey, we've been waiting for this for a long time. Oh, yeah. Get that. Get what I assume is a diet San Pellegrino. Get that cracked for us in yeah, the buddy. most Muslim way we can. I've got the Diet Coke. We are ready. It is the all Sharia hour yeah. uh, on The Strategist podcast. Uh, welcome. This is yes. a big deal. No no, Stephen Carter tonight. Two hosts. No Stephen. One yeah. Corey. Oh, my God. Who's Never done this before. Picks? Well, I think we know. Zane. Yeah. I think we know who's going to be. I think we know it's going to be. It's going to continue to be you, Corey. <laughs> They're going to sound good, kind of like what I'm now the oldest, whitest guy here. Right? Yeah. So this is. How, how does shit. that feel? It's a nice, uh, nice role to be in there, Corey. Rub it in. It's not great. It's not great. I got to be honest. Our EDI policy is really kicking in, and I'm liking it. I'm really liking it. <laughs> good. It's been, it's been three good. years, but it's finally bearing fruit. Uh, it's, which is nice, Corey. I like this that. This is the first time we've done this combination. This is very exciting. I assume. I don't know. No, it is. We've delayed a few times. There was plans, yeah. but it's here. It's, it's happening. It's real. Built We're the doing anticipation. It. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm clear. Just so I'm clear. Mm-hmm. Am I going to have two people asking yeah, me? Yeah, you probably are. You kind probably of banal yeah. questions, you or is it questions for now? I might new podcast called the Hot Seat. <laughs> yeah, I might might not even chime in for a long time. <laughs> just uh, just hang out in the corner, Corey. We'll see how this goes. Okay, hey, we'll guys, see. Let's do um, it. Can, uh, before we do it, can I make mention of something? There's some big important yeah, news. Because you're the host. Say. No, no, I want to jump in with something. This is important. Calgary I Surge. Met, uh, no, no, it's no. not it. So why are you jumping in with my news? Uh, I, I <laughs> met her fan in St. Albert. I met, a, I met our fan in St. Albert. Um, he came up to me. We did this me, whole podcast for him. And, and, and yeah. he said, listen, I'm from here. And I said, wow. I've been door knocking for a while. I'm glad I finally found you. So uh, it, was, it, was really good to, it was really good to meet him. Uh, shout out to, uh, I forget his name, but uh, I found him. I found him, Corey. I found him for us. That's wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Great That's news. Really, really Who's really the fuck glad, about the Calgary search? Really what glad are they? you started off a with A curling that. team? I have no idea what they do. So I thought you were going to talk about Calgary's hottest basketball team there with your big name. You mean but... only basketball team? Yeah, <laughs> hottest maybe. Hottest basketball team. Okay, guys, let's move into our first segment. Our first segment is called What to Do When the Sun Ain't Gonna Shine. Um, Alberta has a moratorium on renewables. In a Thursday news release, the government said it's pausing approvals of new wind and solar projects. I've heard, Corey, that you and uh, our friend Stephen Carter already discussed this on the podcast on Thursdays. I, if you could spend $6 Thursdays and find out. Hostless yeah. yeah. Patreon episode. But there's been, there's an update and I've got questions and uh, Zane wasn't there. So let's talk about it. So uh, Saturday, a couple days ago on her radio show, Premier Daniel Smith said one of the reasons for this pause is Justin Trudeau. You know, it's Ottawa's fault. She said the federal government is preventing development of backup generation for renewable energy and that backup plants powered by natural gas are needed for when the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining. Experts have said that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because there's no requirement for 24-7 power from wind and solar. So I want to get your take here. Zane, let's start with you. What do you make of this reasoning? You know, is that is it good strategy to blame the feds? Is it a consistent strategy? Uh, wh- what do you make of the latest development? Well, I, I uh, haven't heard what Corey and Stephen have had to say. I, I suspect it was a load of bullshit that you can pay $6 to hear. Um, but don't worry, we're going to do a better job here. Uh, I, I think, you know, when analyzing the story to begin with, it's a really confusing one. Is that fair to say? I haven't listened to your episode, but I assume it's you guys yeah. were probably losing your shit. And it, it starts with what the fuck? Right. Because it seems like on the on the baseline, 
that to stop renewable energy projects, some 90 projects in their in their tracks potentially, um, has so many downstream ramifications, all of which are negative, that it just doesn't compute for me from a political strategy perspective. And I'll get to answering your question in a second, Annalise. But well, thanks, to thanks. me, this seems like <laughs> finding... It it, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This, this seems like finding a rationalization after a bit of blowback and scrambling for a rationalization after a bit of blowback. And I think the the federal blame argument is always available, frankly, to any Alberta premier, regardless of jersey color. But I think it has like a natural ceiling. It has a natural limit. There's diminishing returns. And Danielle Smith has to be really careful because when you are choosing a file like this, based on perhaps a bit of mythology of your own, around what you feel like Alberta is versus what it actually is. And what I mean by that is who's running a lot of these renewable energy projects. If you look at the heart of it, you know, many of them are are, are these enterprising startups. Significant amounts have funding and investment capital from outside of this province, let alone outside of this country. But there's also another major player in a lot of these renewable projects. There's municipalities. And of course, there's the energy companies, the oil companies themselves. And so Danielle Smith's entire fact base here might be tainted with a bit of mythology. And this is a sin previous premiers and leaders in this province have committed around what they think this province is versus what it actually is. And to me, when she has that rationalization on a radio show on Saturday, it's pretty poetic in two ways. Number one, it's poetic because it's the same thing she'd always say. It'd be Justin Trudeau's fault, his lack of doing something, her lack of depth and understanding about what argument she's making, an argument that's easily swatted away, being like, we don't need this shit for 24 hours a day. That's never how it was supposed to work. That's never how we expected it to work. That's never how it was right-sized by by folks in, in market conditions. And poetic in a second way, that to me, this entire idea seems like an idea that would be thrown in a radio segment six minutes at a time. Being like, you know what, should we maybe perhaps like have a moratorium on on renewable projects? Like more after the break, I'll take your calls and texts. And it sounds exactly like that type of Danielle Smith idea. And she's done this before. She's got a history of like throwing out and floating out things she kind of understands, barely understands, has like a top line attraction to, but does not have the depth or, or, or frankly, the, 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 the level of knowledge required to kind of carry the conversation beyond a couple of minutes. And so I find it quite illuminating or quite interesting that it kind of ends up that way. Long story short, it's a rationalization, a scramble for a rationalization. And why not go something to something that you've used before? But there's a natural limit. And I want to maybe talk about that a bit more. Okay, Zane, tons to pick apart there. Corey, let's uh, let's bring you in. What is uh, what what do you make of what she said on Saturday? And maybe give us a little summary of what people can pay six dollars to hear more. <laughs> no, I would, don't do that. Don't do that. We need the money, man. Look, I think um, I, I think I can understand why Zane thinks this feels like feeling a way to an answer that works. Um, obviously, she has a bit of a history of doing that. Obviously, this is something that it's on its surface is fairly challenging to understand, but I, I think the answer is a little simpler than that. And I also think they've clearly been planning to do this for a little bit. So you want you want a bit of a teaser. One of the things we talked about on the Patreon episode was she's kind of left breadcrumbs to this for a while. And with the benefit mm-hmm. of hindsight, you can go back and say, oh, yeah, her complaining about all of that agricultural land having solar panels on it in Southern Alberta, that musings in the spring. Well, that, you know, 
that seems like a bit of an indicator that perhaps action like this was going. Certainly, she's talked about, uh, you know, the intermittent nature of renewables. And uh, this seems fairly consistent with that. In fact, I think her answer on Saturday was a lot closer to the truth than her comments on Thursday. You know, so Thursday, when this comes out, there's like this real potpourri of reasons why she's doing this from I can't see the mountains as one of them, literally one of the things yes. that was put on yep. there to, um, you know, to, uh, you know, concerns about how we're going to recycle and reclaim solar panels to, to the, the property rights. Like again, real effing grab bag of things, most of which can be batted down pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, it's been observed by many people, for example, like, yeah, that's, you know, that's true that solar doesn't work as well in the winter, but n- neither do crops, you know, if we're going to use that as the comp. So true. It's, it's there, there hard was, to grow crops in the winter. There's a lot. But let me tell you something. I um, I made some comments on uh, X, as it's now known, and I got a real, uh, you know, insight into some of the conversation that's going on on the other side of this issue. The, the take back at Alberta folks and, mm-hmm. um, you know, got a little bit of a exploration, shall we say, into exploration. this. Exploration. Let me tell you something. A lot of people pretty supportive of what the premier did. I think they're a small minority of the province and we got to get back to that. But a lot of people online pretty supportive of what the premier did. None of them talking about sight lines. None of them really talking about mm-hmm. recycling. Most of them just talking about the fact that they think that solar and wind suck, right? Like that's what it comes down to. And it's a hostility towards it relative to their preferred energy sources. Uh, you know, thermal plants of, of gas and coal in particular, which are much more consistent in their output. And so I think on Saturday, well, I can easily, easily see how you would get to feel into an answer that works. I think in reality, she did the classic mistake of of saying what was actually kind of the truth like she thinks these suck and she wanted to uh she wanted to put the screws to a federal government that's trying to force alberta and all of canada to use far more renewable energy and and that's my view of it so i you know i think that in many ways we're just sort of peeling back the layers of the onion i think that the premier was a little bit more direct with albertans in a funny way than newfeld was when he was announcing these things on thursday and I, I, this is much closer to the truth. The, the simple truth of the matter is, this is a province that's not particularly enthusiastic about wind and solar, uh, you know, from a policy point of view. I think that's an absolute shame for a lot of reasons. I, I think that it's way offside of what Albertans want, but here we are. And, um, and I can also say this has been an issue that the Take Back Alberta group have been seized with, with quite some time. Quite some time. So, again, with the benefit of hindsight, this probably shouldn't have been as surprising as it felt on Thursday. Zane, do you have reactions? I saw you kind of taking some notes and shaking your head a little as Corey was talking. Like, do you have reactions to to um, what he's saying? And I guess to and maybe Corey, you can jump in first. But like, it, it, your your premise of that this was the truth. Why not come out with it on Thursday? Because he felt through. Because it's fucking small. Because it's petty and small, and people know that they're not supposed to be petty and small. So they created a different version. And, you know, this is a conversation that's happening in rural Alberta. Don't kid yourself. There are people who are very concerned with the fact that there just seems to be more turbines and solar panels going up all of the time in in fairly prime places. And there are people who are, uh, you know, as a result, somewhat hostile. And, And have started asking questions with... 
I mean, no sense of irony about, well, how are we going to clean these things up? As though Alberta doesn't have a massive oh, problem with, yeah. with oil wells <laughs> in, the, in the same space. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, they tried to address a real concern, but that probably wasn't the actual reason they were doing it or the actual reason why their supporters are so uh, ginned up. Okay, Zane, it, jump in. It, it is interesting for her to spend so much political capital early on this, right? And the time frame is also fascinating around when she does it in the summer. I, I actually have no insight around that other than to think, well, if you're going to make a major policy change like this or a moratorium like this, um, halt a lot of projects in their tracks. And, and, and if you're going to own it, if you're actually going to own it, would you not want to actually spend more time on it? Maybe do do it with a little bit more fanfare. Like, you see, what, what I don't understand is, to Corey's point, um, I feel like the reasons he gave, the ones that the premier gave on Thursday, the ones that were shot down immediately, and not to say her answer on Saturday was not shot down, as you mentioned, Annalise, leads me to the belief that she just, just like she's found a, a feeling. And blaming the feds, especially for your base, is never a bad strategy for your base. And I think what we should be talking about is less so the base on each side, but the persuadable folks, the folks that are looking at this um, uh, around a, a much more practical, pragmatic sense of what this place is versus what Danielle Smith wants it and wills it to, to be for a very small minority of people, uh, specifically in rural Alberta. Yeah, here's the thing. It's pretty clear to me that they knew this was going to be unpopular. They released it a Thursday before a long week. Yeah. That doesn't exactly... Like, that... That was around the same time as we heard that the prime minister was getting divorced, just for some context here. Like, this is when you dr- – okay, dead of summer, long weekend. Of course. I mean, this is this is not when you do the things you think you're going to be proud of, frankly. And so, like, let's be really clear. They, they knew this was going to land with a thud with an awful lot of people. Uh, if they thought otherwise, they wouldn't have done it on that particular time. For me, the blaming of the feds was uh, – was, always going to make an appearance because this is Alberta. I don't actually believe there's diminishing returns there, Zane, because I haven't seen them yet. I've been waiting over 40 years to see diminishing returns on blaming the feds. Hasn't well, happened. On, a, on an issue like this, I, I feel like you have the sole action taken by a premier. The rationalization she has around the feds is weak at best. And we know that this is something that a premier with her sort of tendency of just throwing stuff out there does. This is her decision, her decision fully. And the fact that it took her three days to get to a rationalization of it that many people have not heard. I suggest we are probably one of the first sources of indicating her federal government rationalization. Yeah, and are probably it, doing, uh, it comes out on the Saturday of the long weekend on her right, radio Corey, show so, picked uh, up know, by to me, To me, what this actually indicates, right, and where I think we might agree – is this is positing a challenge to that general public and perhaps even the opposition. How long can you keep this alive? Good fucking luck, right? Like, I've got this policy. I'm spending a bit of political capital on it. If we agree, Corey, that it's going to be unpopular, right, regardless of the, who the blame game goes, goes to, it's about how, how active can you keep on this file, folks, right? Like, are you going to spend time, energy, and are you going to organize around it to keep this ball in the air? Or are you going to let me have this one because I'll move on to the next story. And she's actually been quite masterful on moving on to the next story, as we've seen over the course and leading up to that campaign. So the one thing I'm looking forward to in, in, in the next little bit is to see what strategies are in play by third party groups, by advocacy organizations, and perhaps even by the opposition NDP to keep this ball in the air. And how do you clearly communicate what's going on here? 
I'll let Corey respond, but I want to talk about the opposition in, in a second because there's a, there's a big question there. So put that on the side for now. Well, look, I actually think that one of the comments you made at the start here, Zane, is, is a little more important. I'm going to elevate one of your comments and pick the comment that I think is, is better. And I'm going to ignore all of the things I, I disagree with for a minute. I'm going to be very selective here. And when you talked about a lot of people fall into the mythology of the province, I do think the premier has done that. I, I, so my personal feeling on this is she may have, she may have really screwed herself on this particular file. I think that this is a real opportunity for any opposition, and I think we should jump into that. I don't believe Albertans, at the end of the day, are going to be particularly satisfied with any of the answers she's put forward there. I can tell you something. As the guy who ran polling for the government of Alberta for like four years, I've never seen a poll that shows Albertans are opposed to renewable energy. Never seen anything like that. And there was quite a bit of polling that was done in the lead up to the launch of the uh, the carbon tax and during the creation of the climate plans in 2015. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, in an ongoing basis, those issues are checked in on here. And I'll tell you something. Generally speaking, the things that Albertans universally, conservatives, new Democrats, uh, you know, federal liberals, People who wear purple and go to the mayor's office, whatever you want to be. One of the combining <laughs> things here in Alberta, or you know, unifying things, I guess I mean, has been people are fine with climate action. They're fine with the investments in yeah. uh, you know making us mm-hmm. energy efficient. They're fine with us making investments in changing the power uh, system. By the way, the phase out of coal was very, very popular in in polling for good chunks of it. Obviously. That was very variable depending on communities, much less popular in Hinton and coal mining country for obvious reasons. But people people like renewable energy. People like the notion that in the future we will have a cleaner grid. And people also like the idea that people are going to invest in Alberta. And so where I think the premier has made a very, very big error here, even if we want to set aside the policy, is the politics of this are just not going to be her friend in any way, shape or mm-hmm. form. The only groups that I could see her potentially having like enthusiasm for this are the groups that she's really got a mortal lock on already, those rural areas. But I think if you ask people in suburban Calgary, suburban Edmonton, clearly the inner cities of both of those cities, in the small communities, there, there's just no chance that this is going to be a winner. And while we are quite a way to an election, you don't want to be so offside with the population so quickly. And and there's just so many opportunities now for the opposition to come in and hit them about the economy, hit them about the future, hit them about unreasonableness and kind of this self-defeating approach that's happened here. I'm curious to see where it goes. There's a lot of tactics that are available to all sorts of players, not just the NDP. But uh, yeah, man, I, I think that this is a bigger problem for Danielle Smith than she realizes right now. What what about that six months from now, right? Like, it's a six-month pause, so that puts us in February? I don't know. February, yeah. let's say, family day, long weekend. They come out with the results on a Friday. Like, what's the... what's the? Because uh, we all know that that is what's going to happen. Like, what's the strategy there in terms of... Okay, basically, they're, they're, they're pausing it for six months. People are upset. We can get into opposition well, strategy in a second. But then what happens in February? Well, it depends on what how how Machiavellian you think Daniel Smith is with the implementation of this policy, because a six month moratorium could literally not just be the shot in the foot or the shin, but could be the the stab in the heart to the renewable sector for a long time. You can derail a lot of shit with a six month moratorium. 
And I think it starts with, and I'm sure Corey's going to add to it, but it starts with the drying up some of the capital, right? You hear it all the time in the, in the business world that like, the, you know, the capital will flow where there's opportunity and it moves quick. And I don't always buy into speaking of mythology. I don't always buy into that, you know, very sort of business centric mm-hmm. capitalism, you know, like we kind of like, you know, it moves so quickly. But in certain cases, six months uh, plus the story that she is sending. Um, is enough time to say we're yanking out of the project. We're we're you know we're we're going to take whatever loss and we're moving to places, uh, other jurisdictions across North America, if not the world, that are going to be friendlier and frankly more predictable. And this is the part where I do believe a lot of the uh, the sort of business speak around it more predictable about what is going to happen to our dollar. We may, may not even Certainly. mind waiting a bit longer. But if we know this thing's going to happen, that we live in a stable democracy, not a knee jerk sort of democracy or a knee jerk six minute segment at a time, you know, call and text, see what you think about it. And then I may or may not reverse course style of democracy. Then I think the first order effect, Annalise, in that six month period might be the capital drying away. And then it's going to be all the other things almost kind of don't even matter. If these projects, let's say the 90 some odd projects that have been kind of uh, uh, put on ice, um, if those stop, good luck starting another 90 or another mm-hmm. 200, or another 300, even if we have all of the viability, the talent, the sunshine, as you mentioned in your intro segment, if the money dries up and the confidence erodes, I think that's going to take a long time to come back. Corey, any, uh, any thoughts on kind of next six months? Well, no... No company likes to think that a government's going to act in such a capricious nature and really damage their opportunities for investments. We saw lots of reporting at the end of last week and over the weekend, companies saying things like, we got screwed, real anger, real hostility, real sense that investments have disappeared. Let's just say this action has fundamentally changed the risk profile of investing in renewables, even when this goes away, Mm -hmm. even when this six-month moratorium goes away. So if the government's going to come out of it and say, we want renewable investment, it's going to take more than what we had in order for people to feel comfortable. You might have to be putting up, you might actually have to be putting up money on the table in a way that we don't need to right now in order for people to get invested. The irony there is amazing, right? Like we, we put money in, right? We said that this is a leech, the renewable sector, to much of a drain on the public purse to be viable. It becomes viable. We shut it down and we might be repeating now that we might cycle. To, yeah. It's fucking nuts, man. Like that's where we it's could amazing. be. Here's the bottom line in business. And I, un- unlike Zane, I actually do believe money moves very quickly. I don't dispute that for a moment. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you have got an environment where there is, well, let me put a little nuance on that. You've got to ask yourself in the renewable space, is there a shortage of capital or a shortage of opportunity? And there is, um, you know, there's some, I'd say early evidence that like in the, in the European market, for example, when they put things out to tender, they're actually having a lot more failed tenders now where there's not enough renewable companies investing or putting forward because these companies can't be everywhere at once. There's only so much expertise. There's only so much capacity in order to build these turbines and build these solar panels, get these things from the markets where they're constructed, and they have to choose where's the, where's the best return, right? And if we have all of a sudden moved down that list, there are other places they can go. They can pretty much go immediately. They can say, hey, China, let's not ship those things to Calgary, Alberta. Let's ship those things to Berlin. That's easy enough to do. We can reroute things there, especially in this, this very global market. 
And, uh, you know, they're just going to move down the next few things on their spreadsheets. They're going to look at the next couple of opportunities. And here's a fundamental truth about business. It's the same reason why if you, for example, Zane, were asked to, you know, are you interested in this investment opportunity in, in Venezuela right now? I've, mm-hmm. I've got a great opportunity for you. It's in Venezuela. I'm in, Corey. Thank you. <laughs> I can give you a 4% rate of return. You're going to say no. It's too risky. It's too risky for a lot of reasons for me. The fundamental truth in business is the bigger the risk, the higher the expected return. And so now, in order for an Alberta project to be considered you know, potentially lucrative there, you're going to want a higher rate of return and see earlier comments there. And that's a shame. That's a real shame because we had this thing. We had a really viable, thriving, renewable market. And I don't want to call it dead yet, but this is going to be... This is going to put quite a chill on it. And it's also going to put a chill on other industries, too. I was just going to now seen that. a government. Yeah. We've now seen they, a government they, they act in such a those other industries. No, I'll just pick up on Corey's point. That's exactly where I wanted to go. The blast zone of this is not going to yeah. be limited to the sector that it happens in. And, and when you have large municipalities like Calgary and Edmonton fighting uphill for decades, right? Like that's not like fighting uphill for decades for a morsel of tech investment, bending over backwards to get any sort of secondary headquarters in, in, in our province's two major cities, right? The blast zone is going to be felt by them. It's going to be felt by by young talent that's looking at, you know, as we look at the current sort of Calgary and Edmonton housing market as being the top two most searched despite the interest rates. People are going to look at this and say, fuck, oh, yeah, this is that place again, right? And if if this happens here, what happens next? What happens to my job in tech? What ha- what happens anywhere, right? And then this is this is that that sort of unpredictability, the vacuum that Daniel Smith has left, regardless of why we think she went with a federal justification. The vacuum that she has left is actually much larger. The fracture and the hole she's left is actually much larger because it's one about what does she do next on any of these files, right? Economic or otherwise. Healthcare or education, it's that, and I don't, I don't want to go back to some of the campaign narratives that, that we ran in, Corey, yes, we lost on, but <laughs> it's elements of that, right? It's elements of unpredictability that has downstream effects and has a blast zone beyond renewables to other sectors, to the talent force, and frankly, to other even non-capitalist industries, so to speak, that, that, that could be affected by it. Um, I think of just simply the charitable sector, right? If I'm sitting there today as a nonprofit in this province, I'm looking at this and saying, interesting, doesn't affect me, dot, 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 yet, right? And I think that's the the main takeaway for a lot of people inside and out of this problem. Interesting, doesn't affect me, yet. And I think that massive unpredictability. And I know Corey said there was morsels, but man, those morsels were vague and they were not spelt out. And I still would would question that there was enough morsels that that kind of led most people to saying this is going to happen in the first three months of her government. Like I was oh, not predicting yeah, this, listen, right? Man, and I know I'm you're not, not saying that. I'm but not I think, saying that. Right. I'm saying but, we should actually be thinking a lot about when Daniel Smith makes comments like this going forward. Well, that, that is, and that is that interesting. Like vein, picking up the pieces, right? Yeah. That weather vane ad, Zane, right? With the what will she do next weather vane. Um, let's let's talk about the NDP. Let's talk about the opposition. And maybe Corey it's wants like to have a, that discussion so badly. I can't yeah. what see that. It's not going to happen, Corey. He hasn't, he hasn't like said that what happened Right now, Carter would miss it. And Carter would miss it. Come on. I like that ad. I'm going to take credit for it. A lot of people hated it, but I liked it. 
it. I drove by it all the time. Good ass. Um, let's talk about this broader, this kind of last part, and it's almost like a separate segment in some senses about how do you be an effective opposition in general. But let's let's like kind of case study on this issue. So this happens Thursday, long weekend, August. A lot of NDP staff are on vacation right now. Uh, how? What do you do with this over the next um, six months, and I guess beyond? walk me through a strategy how do you like do you just focus on this non-stop for the next six months and use kind of what Zane's saying about this speaks to how unpredictable she is and and what next like what's the Corey what are your thoughts what's the strategy well I think the challenge the NDP have right now is that they are in this is state where they need to very clearly articulate what they plan to be going forward here and let's just put it this way I, I'll always say this it always comes to story what's the story you're trying to tell how mm-hmm. do you how do you make sure you're doing this in a way that leads to the ballot box in a way that you want to get there and yeah it's many years so there's a lot of opportunity to just try things and this is this is not going to be the ballot box issue in 2024 well 2024 what am I talking about 2027. I doubt. I do least. want to do over. 2024, there's some things I think. <laughs> if it's in 2024, I will do that episode and we'll make some of the stuff better and we'll, we'll win. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's that's good to know. Um, yeah. Look, they've got choices. And the, the challenge with choices is that could really confuse their communications unless they hone in on one and say, no, this is what we're going to do. Let's just throw a couple of obvious ones on the table. They could say, this is insane. We've got a planet that's on fucking fire and we need to be moving towards renewable sources of electricity i will say one of the very interesting things about the conversation i had online with a bunch of people who uh informed me that uh that uh, the sun doesn't shine all the time and you know germany electricity prices are are up you know, maybe there's some other things going on in europe maybe but you know we can unpack that a different time not too many people seem very fussed about the fact that the planet's on fire and, you know, climate change is a real thing that we need to deal with. And fundamentally, that's going to require us to make choices, even if those choices are not perfectly optimal, right? Like, yeah, it would be great if we could have energy sources that without any kind of loss as a result of storage capacity or anything like that could run all of the time and give us that power. And by the way, we have some, you know, there's hydro challenges there, there's nuclear challenges there, but we've got to make choices here and not all of those choices are going to be as great as we always want to make them. You know, that's, that's a simple reality, but as the NDP, you could make the climate change argument. You could make the business investment argument, which I think is where they're going to end up uh, for a bunch of different reasons. Not least of which is, I think it's one that everybody can kind of just innately say, like if you were going to focus group that with a lot of people, like, yeah, that actually seems pretty unfair. They didn't consult with the industry before they did it. Uh, they they shut down projects that were going to be billions of dollars of investment, but you can take that that business angle to it. You can just talk about the erraticness of Danielle Smith. You can do combinations of these. You can do something I haven't even talked about here. Mm-hmm. But my point is, you, you do sort of have to pick a, a message track and run with it. You don't actually want to do the thing we've accused Danielle Smith of, which is just throwing spaghetti at the wall, doing a hundred different things. And... I'm, you know, if Danielle Smith manages to succeed in making this about, well, do you support Trudeau's energy targets, electricity targets? Holy cow, what a failure that will be for the NDP. So I, I guess the other thing you need to do as you're building out your message track is just make sure you're aware of what the counter message track is going to be and what might lead you down some dark alleys and cause you some trouble. But uh, it is the dead of summer. There are things you need to do now. There are th- messages you need to set up. 
but this is not when conversations get driven in big ways. I'd be curious to see where it goes from here, but I, I can't imagine that if I were the NDP, I would be spending the next two weeks talking about this unless I was planning to spend the next six weeks talking about this. Zane, what's your strategy? I disagree with Corey on the timeline. I, I think this is bigger. Like, I think this story can feed into something if the NDP can can contour it correctly. And, and I think I won't rehash some of the criticism that, that you guys had in, in regards to the multiple swim lanes that were constantly chosen, right? And, and, I, and I, I think that criticism uh, was perhaps fair in, in certain um, t- timelines and time horizons for the NDP and, and, and discrete time blocks over the past four years. And I think it was, uh, you know, worthy of talking about. I think in this case, they have to think about what's short-term and what's medium to long-term. And, and I really only have two pieces of advice, right? Um, pick a lane short-term. I would agree with Corey 100%. And think about how you want to link this long-term with who you want to be. So we'll take the Corey's advice there. There is a question of who you want to be. Are you going to spend the next two years as the opposition party? Uh, and when does your plan ultimately then put you back into government in waiting? Are you going to be government in waiting from the get-go? Um, those two things sound like semantics. They're not. They, they change what you do tactically. They change what you do tonally. Uh, they change even who you get to present. Uh, more than likely, we're hearing that there'll be a leadership race of some sort. Um, so take that into account. But the main sort of piece of advice that I'd have is, number one, think about how you want this to link long-term, right? Because this is a story about a unpredictable premier doing something uh, from the hip, right? How do you want to frame that? And number two, how do you root any rationale, short-term or long-term, to Alberta? One thing that the NDP can't afford to do is to go back to the Social Democrat NDP roots um, now that the election is over. This has to be rooted back in that same of Alberta mentality, right? And, and I like what I'm seeing thus far, the focus on jobs, economy, investment. That makes a lot of sense. To Corey's point, it's the most palatable. It's the easiest. Um, but just because the election is three and a half years, four years away at this point, does not give you the opportunity and does not give you the mandate, I would say, to be like, let's just do the classic NDB thing, put all of our eggs in the climate basket. Hey, as much as I agree with you, that's not the of Alberta strategy. So that's the one one sort of kind of, those are the two pieces that I kind of put on the table. Corey, you know, it looks like you were just itching to say something oh, there. Oh, well, <laughs> just it's, itching. it's really, really interesting. Um, because, of course, when you're coming up towards an election, there is this, there is this thing that happens in every political party where you are not talking about the things your base wants you to talk about because almost by definition, you're going for a different group in a general election, right? You're going for that. We've talked about this a million times in a million ways, that persuadable group that are going to give you the election. And so in Alberta, in that last election, that was Calgary, right? It's probably going to be Calgary next election too, by the way. You don't know that for certain. It's probably going to be Calgary. And you have conversations that occur with increasing regularity as you move towards an election where people say, I think you should be talking about X. And the leader's office and the campaign's rejoinder is, that's not what this election's about. We're going to talk about why, because all of our polls say we're going to talk about why. And you get away with that because it's it's like so immediate, it's so urgent. People can understand the urgency and the expediency, and you've got to have the conversations that are going to drive the votes at that time. But that base does have some sort of like implicit belief that, okay, but in those other times, we're going to talk about our stuff, the reasons we're here. And the challenge with right after an election, yeah. at a moment like this, 
is the base is going to want to talk about those things. It's really interesting to me. I was so jump it. Well, look, I was I I was at a a stampede. I I was doing the circuit. I was going to all the different stampede Stampede. breakfasts, and one of the ones I went to was the NDP caucus breakfast. There, it was you know I I saw Rick Bell going around taking his notes, and you know I saw a lot of MLAs going and chatting and saying hello to people after the election. There were some speeches, and uh, you know there was. Uh, an introduction uh, that Samir Kantney gave that was longer than the speech. By the way, Samir, if you're listening, you got to make your intro shorter, man. That was that was a little much, okay? Just a little much. But uh, when Rachel Notley came up, she started talking about the things that this NDP opposition was going to go. And I was kind of sitting there, you know, I was looking at what that crowd wanted to hear. Right. Like what were the applause lines for a crowd in Calgary after this election? You know, is it? And so Rachel Notley says, oh, we're going to fight for the economy. Polite applause. And we're going to fight for health care. Much more sincere applause there. And I, I all to say they are going to have different issues. And it's going to yeah, be very are. difficult, very difficult for a party, particularly a party that might be going into a leadership race to not gear at least a little bit towards that base. So, you know, the challenge for the NDP will be, how do you keep it between the navigational buoys on the way to the the pier here, like to the next election, while still doing the kind of base service that needs to occur at a moment like this in a political party? Well, the question really is, what is the NDP if we want to get more, you know, uh, <laughs> right, existential? About, like, ha- is, is, it <laughs> I mean, full, I don't know. <laughs> is it fully locked in, right? Is the Rachel legacy locked it in yet? That 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 she has provided the blueprint for success, and if and and the question is how locked in is that? And I think that becomes uh, a driver of your strategy, your messaging, and frankly, how much red meat you can throw back to the base versus how much you need to keep going in that in that sort of particular election lane. And the one thing I'll add, the one thing I'll add, Corey, is anytime. And you might disagree with this, but I'd say anytime you run a campaign where the concept of lend us your vote becomes an explicit thing you hear from the leader's mouth, you've got a retention, not problem, but you've got retention work to do. That as soon as that election is over, there was a lot of people that voted for you for the first time and the sun still came up, despite what Danielle Smith might think, uh, right? The sun still came up the next day. And you still have work to do with those folks to lock them in. So there's really interesting work the NDP has to do, even beyond this file that I'm talking about now, around directionally locking in what the party is and ensuring that those voters that came out in record numbers in writings like Acadia and Glenmore also see this issue as saying, here's another proof point and something that makes me comfortable about why I voted for the NDP, right? Like lock it in. There's a lot of retention work that can be done now, so that base is larger in the leadership race, should there be one, might actually help with that. But there's work that this file offers as an opportunity for many of those folks in Calgary, as Corey, you've alluded to, might be the battleground again today. And when I say today, yes, in the next couple of weeks after this, these dog days of summer. Yeah, look, so I think the retention issue is a bigger problem when you become government, because then you actually start to make promises. Like the one of the nice things about the lend us your vote if you're in opposition is those people can, for the next four years, every time Danielle Smith and the UCP fucks up any file, be like, well, I didn't vote for him. I lent my mm-hmm. vote to the NDP, you know? Mm. And that and that's actually, that's a pretty great thing. And that, you know, naturally a lot of those votes will solidify. Um, 
a pretty great thing if you're the NDP, I mean, uh, because like it, the people will be thinking like, well, you know what? I voted for them. And so I'm not on the hook for any of the bad decisions a government makes and governments do tend to get less popular. The other thing I want to say, and this is the interesting thing going into a race, like if you're a leadership candidate and you're thinking about that base that maybe, especially like I was talking about their base in Calgary, let's talk about their base in Edmonton, which tends mm-hmm. to be another mm-hmm. eight mm-hmm. degrees ratcheted mm-hmm. towards like kind of the, the progressive or the left of the spectrum here. That's uh, that's really going to pull you in certain ways. But if you're a leadership candidate, you know, what do you want your base to be is another question. Like you have the party as it exists, but you also get to help shape and build the party in different directions and create a different type of base that requires a different leadership strategy. Is that going to be available based on the rules of leadership TBD? But I would say your base also doesn't have to be destiny. Although you're going to create some interesting tensions in your party. If, if, uh, if you don't sort of follow where that is. Uh, simple answer for you, Annalise. Uh, Weathervane at every billboard in every um, part of the province. Uh, two weeks <laughs> fucking government in 2024, according to Corey. Just uh, perfect thing. Just last one, and we will end this. And I, I'm honestly curious your thoughts here. I know we had chatted. You were insincerely curious about our thoughts on the other Yeah, you're doing 40 always, minutes on this one topic. Always. That's very Zane Veldry of you. Congratulations. I know. You're, you're rubbing off good. on me, Zane. But uh, <laughs> during the election, so Zane wasn't there. But Corey, we had those conversations about... Uh, the strength of candidates for the NDP, especially compared to 2015. One of those candidates, and just quickly on this, we don't need to like deep dive, but I'm curious, Najwan, um, who was the director of the Business Renewable Center of Canada, like very well-known, yeah. award-winning. We talked about kind of that good candidate diversity. This is like her area. Does that does that matter in something like this? Like when we're talking about strategy and what opposition should do, is it a like, yeah, this is great. We have an expert in this. Or is it, well, we need to, you know, rely on our comms people because they're the expert. Like how the fact and I'm, I'm just thinking of the fact like the 2015 candidates sure. compared to this time around. Is that a big deal This with this thing that, that you have someone like that as part of your caucus? Well, for two reasons, I think, yes. First of all, when you're in opposition, you don't have a government, right? You don't get to call up the department and say, what's the fact base here? Tell me about it. Give me the pros and cons. I want, you know, a rundown on what people would say who think it's a good idea and what people would say who think it's a bad idea. That's a really great thing about government. Just a lot of policy experts doing that kind of stuff. You don't have that in opposition. And so when you have an expert like Najwan, then you're kind of a leg up. It's going to keep you from saying on the face stupid things which happens all the time in politics right because you have to make you're dealing with live ammo you're shooting from the hip you say things turns out that somebody who has even a degree of expertise would be like that's that's a bad idea and you've said something that's stupid happens all the time in opposition politics you're not going to do that when you've got someone like Najwan there so that's great and I think that's the primary value. I mean, that's that's the primary value. You're going to make sure that when the leader is up there, when any of the other critics are up there, um, you're you're going to be making sure that they are always dealing with a very durable, very thought out case, and that matters, right? the The second one is obviously herself as a critic and herself as a, as the person who can go out there and and speak and passionately deliver the issue and communicate it well. Well, she's got policy expertise and she's got communications expertise as a politician. I think having a certain humility on both fronts and making sure you're still using those caucus resources is important. You know, but she'll, you know, she's by all accounts a, a, you know, 
a very talented MLA, even in these early days, I, I won't say who, but I was talking to uh, an NDP MLA who'd been around the band, and uh, they were telling me that she was one of the standouts, in their opinion, from Calgary. And so having somebody on that file that you can really activate on that, particularly in the dead of summer when, I mean, if you're Rachel Nolly, you might be on vacation. Right? Mm-hmm. That's that's really useful too. And that's really great. Although I still believe that the ultimate value is just, you're going to make all of the communications better because of the expertise that you bring. Zane, anything to add there? Nothing to add. Lean in. Okay. When you've got domain expertise, that's the entire point. Lean in, let the comms people scaffold it. And then find the larger story where you're going to add to this, where you're going to make the linkages, right? That really matters. I think the way you don't get into the the uh, the sort of situation or sort of the, the 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 cycle of having 95 different issues constantly is you think about the linkages. What are the one or two things that feed into this constantly so we can make yeah, this big a case? And you might think it's early right now. It's not because you're going to have these discrete chunks of time with potentially a leadership race the next fall, the session coming up in October as we hear. It's not going to be a lot of time before you're back to election mode. Frankly, one would argue you need to be back there relatively quickly next six months. That story in three acts with the scenes all mapped out, regardless of an agnostic, I would say, of leader, is so helpful when you're now having to then you know, insert different sort of chunks as they appear over time as part of that story. I, I would get started on that early. Yeah, look, I, I'd say that communications obviously matters more when people are paying attention, but it's easier to win an election in four years than in four months. Mm-hmm. And so use this time well. Don't just sort of sit on your hands and think this is coming. One thing I did want to put on the table here, though, is when you've got deep domain expertise, you can get real in the weeds, real mm-hmm. fucking quick. And so that's the one thing that you've got to sort of check yourself on, whether you're Najwan or anybody who's got this expertise. And when people are saying that's kind of missing the point, especially your comms people, make sure you're listening to them and just be mindful that 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 is just a that is a risk of domain expertise. We all have it, by the way. No, like, it's you true. really want to get me on a like a random tangent on, I mean, I don't know, like color theory or something, I'll do it. Like I'll fucking go down that rabbit hole, but it often misses the point. And so you've just got to be careful. This is okay. why I think good comms people listen as much as they speak and and and, and absorb uh, and ask good questions, as we've seen, especially working with what you call elected officials. It's really about this concept of sitting down, understanding what you know, and then making it palatable to the public and saying, well, that's actually oh, actually yeah. not necessary. Totally. Hey, tell me more about this. I don't understand this. Those sort of questions and that level of humility as a comms person actually gets you so much further and crystallizes their, whether it's written and, and, and or written uh, and or verbal sort of oral communications that they're going to be delivering. Yeah, look, put your comms person in the room. I can't stress that enough. Like the, uh, I know we've now changed topics a little bit here, but- it's Just morphing, I, correct. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in a meeting and my value has been like realizing, oh, there's a there's a tension on that particular point. Or, oh, they're a little hung up. Or, oh, they just spent 30 minutes talking about this topic. And while I don't think it's going to be the public topic, we're going to need to make sure there's questions for it. And you can learn so much just by observing the conversations that occur around here. Good comms advice, Zane. I want to second that. Yeah. Great comms advice. I'll throw that. 
Uh, okay, moving on to our next segment. Our next segment is called Livid Liberals. Uh, according to a Hill Times article that came out today, some backbench liberal MPs are livid with Trudeau's cabinet shuffle. The Hill Times spoke with six uh, MPs from different regions, and all of them expressed concerns about the choices Trudeau made. One said that control is a major issue when it comes to choosing cabinet ministers, and if, quote, they don't think they can control you, that's a negative. Another said the shuffle wasn't based on merit and nothing really changed. I know you guys, you, you did a deep dive about the shuffle. It's been a week and a half. I want to talk to you about your thoughts in the aftermath. Yeah. You're both you're both smiling. Are there things you want to well, take back, Seas? Are there no? Do you no. Have, <laughs> are you going to double down? Like, talk to me well, about this. Let me just respond. Can I just? I'll just start with two words. Fucking of course. Yeah. yeah of course, it's, it's well, about that's, control, that's and question. it's not a meritocracy. It's, Get fucked. Like, okay, <laughs> well, that's it. That's my. That's. I mean, my, and now Corey. Now Corey's going to do the more logical. Corey, what is does this it, mean? Is this about just sour graves? Like, uh, Corey. Well, I, look, do, I do I do have more nuance, but go ahead, Corey. Yes. Yeah, I mean, is it so? Yes. Well, I guarantee you none of the six MPs they talked to were put in cabinet, or if they were, they were put in a, like a much lesser cabinet position than they wanted. Yeah, I mean, it's the predictability of this that I think is noteworthy here. And, and, it, and this is just like tales as old as time. Oh, they're mad because they can't control me. That's your view. Maybe their view is you're a fucking <laughs> asshole. Right. And so there's two sides to every story. And um, one of the things that just is fundamental to this, though, is this does become a trigger for these kind of grievances. This is why people don't generally do these big cabinet shuffles anymore. It's why they've fallen out of favor. It's why yeah. it's gone to more of the tinkering model. Literally the biggest cabinet shuffle since his first cabinet. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, there are going to be hurt feelings. There is, by the way, when you only do one big cabinet shuffle in eight years, that actually makes it an even bigger deal than if you're just doing a big cabinet shuffle every two years. So, I mean, I mean, this just goes back to the point. I just want to underline that we said, okay, this is a strategy that you can use. It is going to up the internal pressure. We said this, right? Uh, and this is a good example of that. This is what happens because now there are people who just feel way on the outs and they're they're now talking to the Hill Times using pretty colorful language, by the way. It's an interesting read. I recommend anyone kind of go and look at it. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not showing a bunch of happy campers. And maybe it's only six unhappy people. Six becomes 12, becomes 24, becomes 48, becomes we need a new prime minister pretty fucking quick in this game. So you got to you gotta sort of watch yourself. And, uh, and by maybe dealing with some of the external pressure, the prime minister has increased the internal pressure. Zane, what's your nuance? Let's hear it. Well, let me start with uh, my, my what I left off with, which was, uh, if I'm recalling, uh, just reading the transcript here, get fucked. Uh, so I'll pick <laughs> up from get fucked, which was, which by the way, I don't think Trudeau has enough leverage to say that. I think that's interesting. If this was a 2015, like even like, fuck, no, like he has all coattails and all. This to me is really interesting. The fact that these leaks occurred to begin with. This is not the first one. Hill Times is the second or third newspaper to report MPs wanting to speak after Lametti texting CBC. I think Torstar had their piece, which we based mm -hmm. that last episode on. And now It'd another easily be the same six people talking. Hundred percent. I was and I was gonna right, but this is not the first time that we've kind of heard this. These people clearly have, um, you know, nothing to do because they're not in cabinet now. They're, they're you know <laughs> dicking around in the summer texting. That's not what happened. Yeah, texting. Yeah, texting. everything. 
things MPs can do. Okay, Corey, but these people clearly uh, were taking a lot off their plate because they thought they were going to be in cabinet. Here's the issue for Trudeau. Because as much as I have sympathy for him and the PMO, they get to make their own decisions. This is not a merit test. This is not a uh, this is not some sort of like you reach this bar and we give this to you. Circumstances change. We have many factors. I'd say one we haven't talked about enough is fucking loyalty and gratitude. I think a lot of the folks that he gave these roles to will probably be grateful and by extension loyal or already loyal and they're ergo grateful, whatever whatever ordering sequence you want to put there. But loyalty is a big fucking one. But to Corey's point, when you change and swap 30 out of your 38 sort of positions, and then you come out with the rationalization that there's nothing to see here, people, and, you, and, 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 and while mm-hmm. producing a massive fucking show, like, what are you doing, right? And, and I think he's caught in this position where he does not want to admit that something needed to change, and then makes this big change, and then goes on to say, nothing needed to change, but I made this big change. And when you don't have an external rationalization that becomes an internal sort of rallying cry that people are like, you know what, PM, I'm fucking bought into that. We're down 10 points in the polls, but I get every single move. And, you know, there are pieces that we are now discerning or we're adding narrative to because he hasn't given us one that we're adding narrative to that if I was in that liberal caucus, regardless of the names and the folks that got promoted, could kind of jazz me up, right? Like, you know, we're, we're building a firewall around the GTA. Everyone I've selected is going to be someone who won their seat by 10 points or less. Oh, and guess what? We know that Pierre Polyev is going to try to make a play for multicultural communities. So what we're going to do, we're going to find the most fucking talented person from some of these key communities. We're going to make sure that they're not just going to win their riding. They're going to be an ambassador and an ally in your riding. So if you feel like you're on the edge, don't worry. Arf Ronnie's here because he's got a, a lot more sway than being justice minister. He can actually make these gains. We've got our first minister from this community. We've got our first minister from that community. You put that story together. It's not there yet from what I'm saying, right? But you put this story together and you have a pretty compelling rallying cry. But the the failure I see is that the PM did not necessarily have an external rationalization. And when you don't even have a rationalization externally, good luck trying to make that an internal rallying cry for people to get around because we're trying to put in the fill in the gaps. And the biggest thing I've learned from the story is so are a bunch of people inside the liberal caucus. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a really great point, Zane. There's, uh, we've talked about this in a couple of other contexts, but one of the uh, great comms advice this episode, folks, you know, you make sure to bookmark this Calm's one here. heavy. Yeah. This is going to uh, be taught but, in classrooms. <laughs> there is a human need for narration and narrative. And if you do not provide a narrative, people will create their own narratives around it. And if the narrative that was provided is so weak immediately falls apart, it's as good as not having a narrative at all here. So this this need, this patternicity that we all have, right, where we say we've got three random events and we want to connect them through a story. That's very true in all walks of life. It's very true in government decision making as well. And and Zane, I think you hit the nail on the head. One of the things that is going to potentially and let, let me be clear, like this level of grievance, I would have expected even if the if the prime minister had a great story. Mm-hmm. What I think is really interesting, and you mentioned this too, Zane, is that of the six people they talked to, I'm putting six in quotes here, they all seem to have a different gripe. A different grievance, right? It was like, ah, they're just looking for compliant people. And I don't understand what they're doing here. It doesn't seem to consider the regional. Like, why does BC only have one senior minister and, and three, you know, you know, minor ministers? And, 
a couple of things like that that uh, look like they're like individual issues here. Any of them, I think, could have individually been dealt with by a stronger narrative from the prime minister's office, right? Like, we are looking for people who have proven delivery, have the love of their colleagues, whatever it is. Like, if if you could put a, a, a kind of a sensible story together. But the fundamental sin is, and we talked about this at the time, the prime minister's doing this because things aren't working, does not want to admit things aren't working. Why, right? why do you think that yeah. narrative, though, like... Shouldn't it have been obvious that he needed that narrative? Like, why, why do you think that has been missed in all this? Well, he it's not like they didn't try, right? Like, I mean, it was lame, but it was like, oh, we're going to... I mean, this is a great example of the fact based in the comms just went on two totally different paths. We're doing this to bolster our economic bona fides here, but we're not shifting any of the economic ministers. Like, I, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense at all. But, like, that was... They did have a narrative. It was just a shitty one. It was one that didn't hold up to a moment's scrutiny. This is why comms people, when they should are in the, in the room, room. should yeah. keep asking questions. <laughs> should saying, well, okay, Prime, how, how does that... Like, follow-up question. How does that work? Like, I'm trying to help you here make this stronger. The yeah. how here is weak. But that's what I'm getting at is like, they're they're years in, like why, like they're years in, they're not new at this. Why would you not have someone in the room who's like, that again, comms person to me, you always think worst case and you prefer those questions and you have that list. Like, how, how did this get missed? I mean, the the simple one is when you're years in is the most dangerous, right? Because you've done it a few times. You think you know how to do it. You think you understand everybody. I've known this guy for years. He'll be fine. Right. Politicians do this all the time. They get lazy. They stop doing the checklist. They stop applying the best practice because they start having too much confidence in their own expertise and experience here, which is unfortunate because it's always shifting, right? You know, best practice is a moving target at the best of times. And also that that's lazy and that's sloppy. And you do need to sit and give yourself the rigor. The other problem is you sometimes have this real asymmetry. Let's just use the, Let's just create a scenario. I have no reason to believe this is true. I'm just going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But imagine the prime minister says, you know, get the comms people together here. We're going to we're going to have a conversation about this uh, communications around the cabinet shuffle here. Maybe the comms person's been there a year. A year. That's not even that inexperienced in the particular role. And the prime minister, the prime minister of Canada is then saying to them, like, I wouldn't worry about it. This will be fine. The caucus is not going to be very concerned about it here. Right. Like there becomes like such an ace long lived politicians. And short-lived staff that mm-hmm. can cause a problem. Too. Corey's yeah. going exactly where Thank I was. Them. This is yeah. like this is like a seasoned. Like I've been prime minister longer than you've been alive. I was prime <laughs> minister when you were in high school, right? Like that actually might apply to some of these people, right? To draw the point. And you then have being like, dude, just pass me the fucking ball. I'm Michael Jordan at this shit, right? Like, there right. is a bit of like arrogance that Washington that can, Wizards great Michael Jordan. Wow, well, I mean, uh, the, the the twenty points in the All Star game, that shot over Sean Marion. I mean, underrated, probably the best uh, MJ shot, Corey. Um, here's the thing: I, I was going to go exactly where Corey is. There's a tendency, and it goes back to the Daniel Smith thing in some way. Where like you can do away with the fact base, you can do away with the reality. I'm a master at fucking explaining things away. Rhetoric trumps all. And there's folks that just feel like they can they have that superpower. And mainly because they've gotten away with it before, right? They've gotten away with it so much. They're like, don't worry, I'll be behind the podium. I'll give them a story. I'm I'm fucking I've done this, right? And they may not speak so like arrogantly, right? Like to be totally clear, but they'd be like, 
Don't worry about it. Like, you know, you know, or, or someone or more senior might be like, PM is coached. Premier is coached. Don't worry about it. Right. Like we've got this. Yep. They're brief. They've got it. Right. Often as junior staffers or even middle staffers, Corey, that's all you really get. But you're kind of like pitching these ideas and throwing things. Like, oh, big time. They're briefed. They're done. You're good. We're good. We've got it on lock. We did the session. Probably didn't do the session, but we've done. <laughs> They're good. And the more years they have under your belt, and at least you answer the question. Right. The the more often you mm-hmm. kind of see things like this where you're like, it sounded great. It had the Trudeau cadence. The, the shot had the same arc, but like nothing but, you know, rim. Right. Like really, because at the end of the day, um, they, they, they may may actually lose a step rather than gain a step by playing so many years to, to, to kind of mix metaphors a bit. Yeah, so I, I agree with everything that's been there. said there. I do want to say, I still actually, like, I, this would have happened anyways. This would have happened anyways. You know, a, a Why? story. Why? Well, because. What, what would have happened people, anyways? The story? You'd have angry people. Yeah, yeah, oh, because yeah. Now you, yeah. Yeah, because now you have people who just don't see an opportunity ever to get into cabinet, right? And they're just, they're they're in their feelings and they're upset. And they're thinking like Stephen Carter recommended to them. I think maybe that was a Patreon. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Who can say? But this idea of maybe the only solution for me is the next leader. And so maybe I'm just going to start being a little bit more assertive here. One thing I am surprised by was the wildly different expectations we had leaked to us prior to as the general public. That was interesting to me from this is going to be nothing. This is going to be nothing but cosmetic to then the narrative became, we actually don't know to guys. I'm hearing this is fucking huge. (laughs) It was a weird kind of run through. Right. And, and I wonder like if they had the, um, perhaps the discipline and maybe even they had their own strategy straight in the PMO around what they wanted to do. They could have made some of those calls in advance around folks, getting them in line, understanding who was not going to get a gig, you know, talk to them about future opportunities like parliamentary secretary, which if I'm not mistaken, Annalise has not been announced yet, right? Other opportunities to get involved, other opportunities to take down the evil that is Pierre Polyev and the current incarnation of the conservative party. They would have had an opportunity, but it seemed like they were also in a bit of what the fuck are we doing? Because as you would expect, as they have done, like I've said, I think their, their sort of lead up and symbolic comms have been pretty solid over the years. You'd expect a bit more around what we're going to see um, prior to seeing it. And, and I wonder for a second if they were actually themselves not entirely sure of that. Yeah, I mean, it, great question. I it, it would be interesting to know, and I'm sure that there will be some pieces written in the next bit about uh, the prime minister always knew it had to be a big one versus as he started to get into it, he started realizing he wanted to make more significant changes, which it, this kind of feels like to your point, Zane. Right? Yeah. Be- mm-hmm. But, you know, actually the comms, maybe I'll argue the other side, the comms makes me think almost the opposite. Like maybe they thought it was going to be bigger, right? Maybe there were going to be changes to the economic portfolios. And then that's Kept what the story the same. Yeah, yeah that's my Fuck, point. Man. You know, like, I just don't know. And none of us will know. Well, I mean, you can't, you also like, to be totally crass, you can't have a story of being like, we selected one of every kind, and they're going to lock in all the <laughs> racial communities for us. But I do think there is something to be said, oh. right? Like, you could never say it like that. But we there are ways to... that reflects the broad cross section of, of Canadians. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And you could make that same political point. You could acknowledge that some things needed to be changed. And I think you could have gotten a bit of a, I shouldn't say a bump, because you may not have seen it in the polls, but a bit of like a coalescing, at least internally. But Corey's right. Like you probably would have seen these voices regardless. I don't know about you, Corey, but I had a few folks outside of Alberta, to be absolutely clear, 
members of parliament on the liberal side texting me being like, what are you hearing? I'm like, what the fuck do you mean? What am I hearing? I sit here in, in Calgary, not like a liberal sort of like hotspot for gossip, right? Like you're the one in Ottawa circles. I'm not hearing jack shit, but people, as soon as they heard it was going to be bigger rather than smaller, all of a sudden imagine yeah, themselves like in that situation. Everybody in their network, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. For sure. Okay. Uh, Corey, I just want to loop back on one thing because I know there's a, I know there's some young comms people who listen to this podcast, and you've had both of you have had some good advice for them. But in when you're in that situation, and I've I've had this conversation with a lot of kind of young people. When you are in that conversation where your your boss, you know, is double your age and is saying everything's going to be okay, and you have, you know, your degrees two years old, and you're like, okay, but it's not. What what should you do? <laughs> well, I, that's a great question. Um, a lot of it just sort of comes with I- experience and age and, and you get your own W's that you get to sort of flag around and say, I, I you know, I understand that. And, and I generally, I, I mean, I could tell you what I would do in that room, but it might not necessarily, let's walk our way to this answer. Maybe Zane's got one off the shelf, but if somebody, if I was working for someone and they're like, listen, I got this. Okay. And it's like, I would say, okay, well, well, help me get it then. Like, let's just make sure that the paper reflects what you're planning to do. And then I would talk it out. And usually through the talking out, you will find the kind of the first level contradictions, I'll call them, right? Where things all of a sudden don't necessarily work. And you can play almost a Detective Columbo version where you're like, okay, so, so sorry, I'm just, uh, you know, so then this would be the message here and that, and how does that tie to the thing, Prime Minister? You know, and you can ask the questions in a way, I'll, I'll confess, I, I think it comes off pretty plainly if you're me i just come off as an asshole i think sometimes no but that. can but, can i jump in but here that line that approach like help me explain it and i want to make sure the products reflect what you're going to do not a bad one this podcast is, is, is a genesis there? of that earnestness i would say Recall, you know, as much as I don't know how much we want to reveal, so we can edit this out, Corey. But no, we're you know, not going to edit anything. the genesis of this anything. podcast was me, a young communications person, earnestly asking you and Stephen these sort of questions, right? With a, with a massive age delta and a, and a clearly a race massive delta, which added which age which delta. added which massive that which a massive sex. age delta, and then of course you know the the race delta, so that adds another ten years. But it was really born out of like explain this to me sort of stuff, right? This podcast yeah. was very much like an explain this to me sort of thing. And I that same advice, right? Like Corey, I think hits it on the head here, which is for my benefit, can you give me a peek behind the curtain, right? For my benefit, right? And I know it's an act of, of, of you and maybe along the way, it will help you clarify your thinking. It will crystallize a few things. It will round out some of the edges that you actually haven't even gotten to internally in your mind and you're going to work out on stage, or you're going to work out behind the podium or in this written statement or whatever. But help me get it, I think, is one of the best ways to do it. it because it, as much as it may present like an act of selfishness, if you're actually in a conversation, rather than help me get it and taking notes the whole time, being like, oh, thank you, like let them go in a monologue, be like, how about this part? Like, would you actually phrase it that way in the speech? Or would you do be like, oh, that's an interesting point. You engage it with it as a conversation. I've found that to be one of the best ways that I personally, I'll just give you personal advice, have been able to learn from folks and frankly, um, steal their ideas and repeat them on CBC for a paycheck. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. The truth comes out soon. I, I would just jump into like that. It's not the truth, it's just that, an ongoing joke. Okay, just. just <laughs> that, um, 
like the pushing back thing. And I think, I think Corey, and you've mentioned it, that age is hard, the age difference, the experience difference. But a huge thing I always say to young comps people is like, you push back you ha- and do it in a polite way as Zane is saying, but you, you have to like you, you you comps people who are just like, yes, 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 yes. There's nothing effective. Oh, about that. totally agree. Like yeah, yeah. that, that is adding absolutely no value. You're just a stenographer at that point. Like you've, you've got to be able to challenge them on, on fundamental things, but if you're going to challenge, you need to, you need to be super clear with yourself where you think the problems are. I think one of the best skills you can develop as a communicator is understanding why you don't like something, because nothing is less helpful than saying like oh, I don't know about that. Like that just doesn't feel right to me. Like you've got to be able to articulate the thing fundamentally that puts it at odds with the strategy as it's been built out there. So, you know, really, really get clear with yourself why you don't like something. And this goes, by the way, for like writing, like a mm-hmm. phrase, like why you don't like it, to like a bigger thrust, like a tactic that you're trying to pull through a strategy. Understand why, then you can have an actual conversation with somebody. But if your conversation is like, I don't know, that just doesn't feel right. And they're going to be like, well, do you have a fucking idea? Like, do you want to elaborate on that? Do you want to expand? Do you want to explain to me why you think that? Like, you're just going to set up hostility. It's much more important that you're able to pinpoint exactly where the challenge is. You know, in, in my own kind of personal world, um, I, one of the things that I, if I run into those kinds of attitudes, like, oh, I think I got this, I, I will often be like, well, you know, that's 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 fine, you think. That I wouldn't say it like this. I'm shorthanded. If <laughs> Tell us how you would say it. I'd be like, well, look, we would, we're going to go through this anyways, right? Like, I, I just kind of firmly say we're going to go through it anyways. We're going to make sure we have it. We're going to document it all out. And this will make sure that our messages are right because I don't know they are until I sort of hear how they kind of come out. And, you know, you can kind of throw the humility back towards yourself, but you just, you have to be insistent that best practice be followed. Interesting. I I always revert to the oh, if I was still a reporter, this is this is the headline that I would write, and that's the goals. yeah. That's what just that's goals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah. uh, lightning that round, works guys. For former reporters, yeah. <laughs> lightning round. We've got a lightning round to do. Quick. I've only got two questions for you. First one is the Would you rather? Would you rather have an Alberta police force or an Alberta pension plan, Corey Hogan? Alberta police force for sure. I lots of provinces have police forces. That seems fine to me. I think it's a waste of money, but I don't find it deeply uh, kind of like contrary to objective. The way I think of like having a pension for just a province of four million just kind of fills me with dread. Zane, which would you rather? Yeah, have? same. I'd rather have a thousand police forces than uh, than a provincial pension plan. A thousand. Okay. Next question. Taylor Swift. She's coming to Canada. Are you going? Well, that's not a question we can just answer. Annalise, this is a Hunger Games style competition that includes <laughs> the Avion sign up that I have done, which by the way, folks, expires tomorrow. You don't to need go. to be an RBC Avion member to be able to sign up for Well, don't give actually, people the don't no, give them the tips I, I, of how to get no. in. Listen, listen, I'm a traitor to my own class. I'll do it. I don't give a fuck. Okay? This is all about creating a better world where we can all uh, share friendship bracelets with one another. The answer is, have I booked a hotel in, in Toronto for each of those dates? Yes, I have. have Annalise. <laughs> yes, I have. I we're like no so pumped idea. to go to this. I have, I, no, I have no idea if we're even going to have a shot at these tickets. Okay, awesome. Good luck. Corey, are you going? I mean, like I could go to a flight to any number of other cities, I guess. Such a cynic. I got money. 
Okay, well, here, yeah, let's leave it on. I got money. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. That's a wrap on episode 1088 of The Strategist. My name is Annalise Klingbeil, and with you, as always, Corey Hogan and Zane Belgian. Thank you.